Hello there, Merry Christmas everyone, Neil Buttery here. Welcome back to the British Food History Podcast, Season 5, eh? Who'd have thunk it? And how better to start off a new season, but with a Christmas special. Talking Christmas feasting and cooking with scholar and author, Dr Annie Gray. Annie is author of several books, such as the excellent Greedy Queen, Eating with Victoria, and Victory in the Kitchen, The Life of Churchill's Cook. She's also a frequent panellist on Radio 4's The Kitchen Cabinet, and she's appeared on countless TV shows, including the excellent A Merry Tudor Christmas with Lucy Worsley. Her book, At Christmas We Feast, Festive Food Through the Ages, published by Profile Books, is out now in paperback, and she kindly came on the podcast to tell me all about it. Oh, it was such a fun chat, and I think you're going to love it. Howevs, before we begin, I've got a little bit of housekeeping as per... But I'm going to reduce it as much as possible and put the bulk of my news at the end of the episode. But there's a few things I've got to say now. First up, I'll be doing another postbag episode at the end of the season. So if you've got anything to discuss, bring up or add to today's episode or any episode so far, please contact me. Email neil at britishfoodhistory.com Twitter at neilbuttery Instagram at Dr. Underscore Neil Underscore Buttery. Start a thread, leave me a DM. Since last season, I've set up a Facebook discussion group called British Food History, the same name as my blog. So if you prefer FB, go hunt that out. I also set up a Mastodon account at Neil Buttery at mastodon.gastrocon.com. Yes, it's a mouthful, and no, I'm not used to it. But links are in the show notes for all my social media and contacts and stuff. Hey, also, a huge thanks to everyone who's subscribed, rated, and left reviews. If you haven't done already, please do, because it means the podcast moves up the rankings, meaning it's more easy to find by people looking for podcasts about food or history. So yet more news at the end, including ways to get hold of signed copies of my book, A Dark History of Sugar, It's a great alternative to a selection box this year, as well as this week's Easter eggs and other subscriber content. Okay, here we go. I spoke to Annie Gray just a few days ago in December 2022 about her book At Christmas We Feast. We talked about loads of things, yet somehow barely scratched the surface of all the things that are in her book. But they included the myths and misconceptions, about the food that we eat at Christmas, why and how we feast, and how the feast of Christmas itself has changed through time. We also talked about what the Victorians didn't invent, plus jelly, wassail, the ancient Christmas centrepiece that was the boar's head, trifle, Yorkshire Christmas pies, as well as the recipes contained within the book, because there's a fair few recipes in there too. I'll be back at the end, but now... Christmas Feasting with Annie Gray. Thank you very much, Annie Gray, for coming on the podcast to talk about Christmas feasting. Your fantastic book, Christmas We Feast, is out just at the right time in paperback. I'm sure it's going to be in many people's Christmas stockings this year. In brief, if it's not pretty obvious by the title anyway, (laughs) what is the book about? 
uh, it's a history of Christmas food. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose it comes out of the fact that I have, as I suspect you have as well, given an awful lot of talks about Christmas food. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the things food historians always get asked to do. So, I mean, I've, I've given a talk on Christmas for years and years and years. And in the middle of lockdown number 456, I can't remember which <laughs> one it was, um, my editor came to me and said, do you fancy writing a book on Christmas food? It seems to come up every year. I'm sure you've got something to say. And of course, my immediate response was, oh, I have so much to say. I'd love to write this book. <laughs> so essentially, I suppose it's it's lots of things about Christmas food, lots of cool stuff about Christmas food, but distilled through, I would say, about 15 years worth of experience talking to the public about Christmas food. So I know what kind of things get asked. I know all the Mm. myths that get trotted out every single year, you know, the kind of tropes. Oh, there were 13 ingredients in Christmas mince pies. No, there weren't. Um, Everybody (laughs) ate turkey from time immemorial. No, they didn't. Um, We all went to church and the food wasn't important. Absolute rubbish. All those things. So (laughs) I wrote it as a series of essays, really, thinking, well, if you're reading it over Christmas, the chances are you're full or drunk or both. um, Mm -hmm. And you just want something to dip in and out of that will give you sort of fun facts, but also ways, I suppose, to challenge your family, things to think about in the run up to Christmas, make you feel festive, but also make you question why we do what we do, which, of course, is, I suppose, our purposes as historians all the time anyway. So it's basically a series of essays about the foods that we associate with Christmas, interspersed with what we did in terms of feasting at Christmas throughout the centuries. So there's a bit on Tudor food, a bit on Stuart food, so on and so forth, interspersed with menus. And then there Mm -hmm. are some recipes as well, um, because some of those foods I think are worth bringing back or at least they're fun to read about so it's a sort of mixture of things really quite a kind of pick and mix book I suppose but I really enjoyed writing it so um it was a lovely thing to be asked to do oh it's a dream book to write it's quite a nice thing to write about something that a lot of people do feel jolly about it's also quite a nice thing where you've got definite foods you're writing about and definite myths you can bust and ways to challenge people but not in a terrible horrible way in a kind of interesting tongue-in-cheek way so it's quite a nice I suppose it's quite a nice feeling book and it was quite a nice feeling book to write but also it was quite quite good to write it in that format I quite enjoyed writing in a sort of non-linear narrative format. One thing that you do kind of point out at the beginning I guess it's the feasting side I mean there's Christmas in many obviously many countries around the world but uh, I guess in every country, Christmas, it's all passed through the prism of that country's culture. And I think it's fair to say that we had feasting and drinking and merriment pretty much down to a pretty good tea before Christmas even was even thinking about showing its presence. Yeah, it's um, one of those things every year people start talking about the true meaning of Christmas. And actually, when you look back, I mean, there's an awful lot of guff written about sort of Saturnalia and various pagan festivals. Now, Christmas is secretly pagan, blah, 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 blah. And most of that is either tenuous or it's a link, but it's not a kind of proven direct line. But what we can say is that there's always been something in the middle of winter in most northern European climates because it's really depressing in winter and it's cold and it's wet and I'm talking to you you know just what 10 days not even that before the shortest Mm -hmm. day and it's horrible and everybody at the moment is feeling quite kind of meh Uh, and you know the light fades at three o'clock and it's about to get really cold and it's raining all the time and it's no wonder people have always wanted to light a really big fire uh, and get drunk and you can't really go out on the fields and harvest an awful lot at this point. And, you know, everything's yeah. shutting down. So there is this feeling of well, what can we do? And so whether you look at early Christmases or the pre-Christian traditions of what was going on in midwinter or pagan druids, call them what you will, 
there's always something in the middle of winter which involves you know giving yourself a boost to get through and of course the early christian church was very very pragmatic in terms of how it adapted earlier pre-existing festivals and ideas into itself to make sure that it reached the maximum number of people and christmas is one of those so the eating and drinking side predates very much the Christianity side and keeps going. You know, there's a reason that the Puritans in the 17th century thought that Christmas was terrible. And that's because it was an excuse to get really, really drunk, play football and then have sex with loads of people if you could do. And that just keeps going. And no matter how many times people say, let's all think about Christ. Actually, you know, the biggest trend that comes out here and in the States and really anywhere that sort of Anglo-Saxon Christmas has been exported to is about getting drunk and doing bad stuff. Um, mm. Judith Flanders, actually, her book on Christmas is very, very good on that. And she really does dig down to go, do you know what? Just forget it. It's really about the booze. I mean, look at all those September babies, for example. <laughs> a massive yeah, peak. Oh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess another thread going through the book is it's not just the foods that we're feasting upon, although we'll talk about those in a moment, um, is how you kind of talk about the history of how the feast changes throughout time. Because you very much talk about, well, I suppose Tudor is the earliest time uh, you talk about in detail. And there's the 12 days of Christmas. There's a Lord of Misrule. It's kind of public feasting. But then as you whip through the centuries, that kind of changes, certainly by Victorian standards. And I didn't realise that uh, the Victorians were very much kind of basing their Christmas, which is what we think of as Christmas, I suppose now, the Victorian Christmas, they were very much thinking back to Tudor times. I didn't know that yeah, at all. That was new nostalgia's on me. never what it, nostalgia is never what it used to be, you know what I say. <laughs> um, and, and, yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's so many myths tied up in our own minds about Christmas and so many, I suppose, things that... There are so many what I would call everybody knows-isms. Those things where you go, where people go, oh, what do you mean sight of source? Everybody knows. And almost mm-hmm. always, and everybody knows-ism is not true. So the everybody knows that the Victorians invented Christmas. Everybody knows that Prince Albert introduced the Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows, et cetera, et cetera. And mm-hmm. all of them are not true. So what I wanted to do was show that development, really, from the Tudors where Christmas was very much about hospitality, external hospitality, really, although sort of internal too, in that the externality of it was about bringing your tenants in and sitting down and feasting them and Mm -hmm. showing your largesse as as a landlord. And then showing the way in which those 12 days really did dwindle quite a lot, partly due to the Reformation, partly due to social and cultural changes, partly due as well to changing farming techniques. And and so you, you, you get this sort of just I mean the 18th century is where it all happens really the kind of decline of Christmas where you go from something like 41 bank holidays over the year to four and the most important ones are actually Easter and you see this dwindling and you see this this sort of tension in Christmas in the 18th century between people who are going oh I wish it was like the Tudors we would all have feasts but of course Mm -hmm. you know that was 150 years ago nobody knows what they actually did at that point they're all just thinking oh it looked nice Mm -hmm. and then you have this sort of plebeian side of Christmas which is all just we want to get drunk and then you've got the the bon ton saying oh it's a little bit grim and you know sort of poor people doing things and we we want to have some food and stuff but we don't really want to have to deal with that stuff um and it's the victorians that managed to weave all those strands back again by reinventing christmas i suppose they would call it but what they do is cherry pick what they think of as the best bits of the past so hospitality 
but you don't want to actually meet people who are poor because that's nasty if you're a middle class Victorian. Give to mm. the poor, fine, but you don't want them in your house because they might steal no. something. Go um, oh, yes, and lots of food. That's a very good idea. But we're not going to eat, you know, heron anymore. Although largely that's because we've eaten them all, so there aren't any left. Um, <laughs> and and it's those kind of aspects all come together. Plus, of course, you've got the the German Germanic influence from the royal family. So Christmas trees come in by Queen Charlotte, and then later on Albert and Victoria, and so on and so forth. And and there's this zeit Geist in around the 1840s and Dickens exemplifies it but isn't the inventor of Christmas mm. where people are going hang on a minute Christmas has dwindled there used to be something better let's reinvent it and it, it is this kind of looking back it's a time of quite large poverty you know rural harvest in particular absolutely awful um, industrialization we've just been through the first wave of that people are talking about capitalism and how mm -hmm. the northern cities in particular are destroying the country dark satanic mills all that stuff so let's grab this thing from a safe distance in the past and bring it back quote unquote um and of course the the big emblems of that are as they've always been the food so it's in the victorian period that we get christmas cake christmas pudding the turkey being at christmas on christmas day and this enormous focus on christmas as opposed to the much wider season which is always what you've seen before but we do also get brand new things bangs of expectation bangs I of expectation are that. brilliant <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, why are we calling them crackers? Bangs of expectation are so much better. <laughs> so that they, they invented one thing, the Victorians, and that's the cracker. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll give them that one. Yeah, we can, yeah, we'll give them that. I mean, they, yeah, because I don't know that they really invented. I mean, they sort of made better, I suppose, or developed, you know. Um, they didn't even really come up with Christmas pudding jelly because that's the 1930s. And in any case, that's really just a development of what came before, isn't it? So, Sounds good, though. It's pretty good. I've made it. It's yeah. um, the brown comes from chocolate, so it's a sort of chocolatey caramelly. It's a little bit like um, having uh, Nesquik with currants in, but it's not a okay. bad thing at all. <laughs> I don't big. think. Other people good to might me. disagree. I like a port jelly if I'm making a jelly. Yeah, going back yeah. to classics like that. No, I think there's a lot of things you can do with jelly. It's become very sort of underrated. I mean, I know it's making a bit of a comeback, but uh, jelly is one of those things where you kind of think that devolution to the nursery and into rabbit moulds didn't do it any good, really. It's yeah, there's round trees. Substance. Sorry, round tree, but the round trees, <laughs> jellies, the, the lime ones are always is the weirdest one. Anyway. Yeah, and they're always better when you eat them as the cubes and never yes. when you make them as jelly. Yeah, I used to get Much more intense flavour. Yeah, Absolutely. Too. Yeah, good. <laughs> We're really good with drinks fun. Binge drink Britain, which people have complained about in the past, seems to actually just be part of our our culture. And I like the section in the book on uh, on on wassail and wassailing. You know the special drinks that we have at Christmas time. Smoking Bishop is my personal favourite. Yeah, have I mean you, got... you can't beat the name, can you? Really? So... No, it's great. Um, so sort of burnt oranges and, and port. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, you're never going to wean me off port chocolate or wine chocolate, as it's written in John Knott, which mm. is basically a bottle of port and some chocolate and a bit of rice flour to thicken it and, and some sugar. I mean, four ingredients. It's like, oh, I don't know, it's nectar. It's like drinking molten Turkish delight. Oh, it sounds fantastic. So good. I'm allergic to cocoa solids, so I can't <gasps> have anything like that. Oh, no. I can only have white chocolate, and that's not even chocolate. Oh, God, no, that's just solid custard, isn't it? <laughs> that's terrible. It's rubbish. <laughs> I'm only slightly allergic. I chuck my toys out of the pram probably twice a year and just go for it. 
down hotel yeah, chocolate. The trouble is, it's 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 the regret afterwards. I can't eat um, beef, and yet I do quite like beef and plum pudding. And from time to time, I just think, you know, what, I'm going to have a slice of beef with my plum pudding, and then the regret kicks in, and I think, don't ever do that again, ever. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I hear you. Your recipe for wassail in there. I've looked at recipes for wassail in the past and yours is very different. The wassail chapter was actually one of the most difficult ones to do because... Well, it's why I brought it up. Yeah, I found it hard to research and loads of the stuff you put in those chapters about drinks and drinking, yeah, were completely yeah, new it, on it, me. I got stuck with wassail very badly, actually. Well, not very badly, but there's a lot out there. It's one of those things where whenever I'm researching a new topic, I will go to the interweb and type it in and see what rubbish comes up. And I'll go to mm. Wikipedia and swear at it. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'll go and find, you know what it's like? You find loads and loads of things repeated. But you know, as a researcher, that you know you look at these things and, and you, you get a feeling about them a lot of the time. Mm. You, fall you follow them, them first. Back. You There's do. There's many a times I've helped corroborate those myths in the past. And then one time you suddenly think, hang on a minute, I actually need to know the truth now. So you follow all the citations back and you follow that tiny little thread and suddenly you find that it was some bloke in the 1930s that made it up. So that happens a lot with wassail. And I think especially because it's one of those things that's become a bit hipster. I remember my editor going, you've got to include the wassailing Walthamstow. I mean, seriously, Walthamstow wassails. This is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and and it, it is absolutely ridiculous. And there's a lot, I think, there's a lot of people now that feel that they are very connected to pagan rites and it's the sort of modern paganism and they want these things to be true and they desperately want there to be fertility rituals attached to wassail and whatever mm-hmm. it is and, and and there just aren't and there aren't really any written recipes before the 18th century either so it becomes really difficult because it, what becomes apparent when you research it is wassail covered all sorts of things it means you know, lots of different things doesn't yeah, it yeah and originally it was just a, a, a call and response over drinks it was wassail drink hail and it could be almost anything so there isn't a definitive recipe for wassail and I think that's its glory and one of the things we're very bad at in general but especially in this country and especially with food history is wanting answers is wanting everything to be very black and white and saying well when was x invented well it developed no when was it invented well this is when it was first named oh that must be it well no because that's just when we know it was written in print but obviously there was manuscripts that we no 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 that's when it was invented yeah. and <laughs> and there, there aren't answers I mean yeah banoffee pie fine you can you know that's the only example I can come up with a, a dish that was definitely invented by one person at one point so with wassail, actually, the more I got into it, the more I thought I want to do this justice so that anybody else who is looking for these answers and is coming up against the same sort of blind alleys that I am can go, oh, OK, no, I can see that. And then they can obviously read the footnotes, which I insisted on having so that other people could follow my torturous routes and go, right, that's where this comes from. I get that. But also the wassail recipe is, is really nice. A lot of these recipes I tested during covid during lockdown mm-hmm. um with a friend who i nearly always test recipes with and she came over and stood outside uh while i <laughs> ladled, ladled wassail at her <laughs> through the window because we weren't allowed to meet um, we all got steadily slightly more drunk than we should have been um while going this is quite good i like the apple i like the fact you need a spoon um, and i think well this is you know you look around and you think actually this is a really cool thing to drink because it's quite a challenge and it's quite a talking point and it's quite unexpected uh, isn't that exactly what you want from a Christmas drink? Uh, well, and all year round. I mean, like you say, the wassailing's just, uh, it's essentially cheers or toasts. They get a bit carried away with themselves by the sound of things. I heard, yeah. this is, and this is 100% untrue, but I'm going to say it anyway. I always say when things are untrue, but some things you can't just ignore. <laughs> and there is one theory that the reason the English lost the Battle of Hastings was because the night before, 
the wassailing did get a little bit out of hand and everyone was a bit hungover the next day. I kind of want that to be true. It sounds plausible, doesn't it? I mean, that's the, that's the thing. It does sound plausible. It does. It really does. <laughs> then again, the, the French probably tanked on wine. So maybe it was just whose hangovers were the, the least awful. Good point. Hey, actually, we're talking about ancient battles. Probably the most ancient thing on a, well, not found on uh, Christmas tables today is the boar's head. Yes. Oh, I love making boar's head. Okay, I'm not glad you... Not something I think the average person will suddenly say. Well, you know, I've never had the opportunity to do it. It's one of those things. I mean, it's such a romantic thing to uh, uh, imagine this kind of what Anglo-Saxon feasts carrying the boar's head, all that kind of stuff. It is and you just savage. think, oh, I wish I could have a go at making it. How did you even get round to getting hold of a boar's head? Well, the first couple I did, I did with pigs. So the first couple I did were Victorian iterations, and the Victorians had managed to uh, eat all of the boar. Well, actually, to be fair to them, the Stuarts ate all the boar, so they couldn't get hold of boar's heads. So most mm. people, with the exception of Queen Victoria, who used to have a boar's head sent over from Germany every year, most people faked it with a pig's head. So the first couple of times I did it, um, one of my close colleagues and friends, um, her dad at the time farmed pigs, uh, and we knew the butcher who would be slaughtering them. So we would go down and find a pig that looked a bit like a boar and put a cross on its back. And then when it got slaughtered, the butcher would know to cut it for us back at the second vertebrae because you need a flap of skin at the back of the head to sew round the stuffing. And the first time we did it, we just did it in my very small, at that point, kitchen, just for a laugh. Just thought it'd be fun to do. So we got together yeah. and we uh, skinned it and we uh, stuffed it and we boiled it and we decorated it and all of her friends and family came over or family came over and we sat and we ate it and it was great fun and it took us all day uh, and we documented the whole thing, which meant that when we then needed to do it in costume uh, in uh, Oldley End House where I was leading the team at the time, we knew what we were doing. So mm. we did that one over three different weekends. So we skinned it the first weekend and stuffed and uh, brined it for the next two weeks. And then we had okay. this sort of two-day pig extravaganza where on day one we sewed it together because you have to sort of sew the eyelids shut and sew the jaw shut and so it you basically make a huge pig skin pig head cushion cover then you stuff okay. it full of uh, force meat uh, then you sew it shut again then you bind the ears down so they don't float away and then you boil it in loads of red wine for about seven hours and then the mm -hmm. next day you take it out and you cut all of this sort of swaddling off that you've put on it. And it looks like a massive hemorrhoid. And you just think, oh say. my God, <laughs> it looks horrific. It looks like this massive pink blob that's sort of <laughs> oozing bits of stuffing where you didn't sew it in properly. And the ears are all floppy and you're just like, oh, it's all blotchy. Um, mm. And then you, you, you basically pimp your pig. So you brush it with port wine jelly and uh, we piped lard on it and you use ham to make sort of leaves and rosemary crown around its head and you kind of poke the ears up with bits of wire and stuff. And eventually it looked amazing. Um, mm. And then you end up with so much pig left over. It feeds 20, 30 people. Right. Uh, but having done that, when I then needed to make a proper boar's head for actually for a, a documentary with um, Lucy Worsley. Ah, that's a great we, documentary. It was it. dead good ah, fun. So you made and, that. I was going to ask, do, yeah. do you make all those things? Or is it like a load of home economy? Well, I've got, I've got a, a really amazing chef team that I work with. Ah, um, okay led by uh, a lady called Miranda Quantrell, who's one of the chefs, one of the tutors at Westminster Kingsway. So she really knows her stuff mm. um, and she's French trained. And, you know, I, the, the team I work with now are fantastic and have made my life immeasurably easier. But obviously they were not also used to stuffing a boar's head. So they managed to get hold of the ball. Uh, and I went down to help them stuff it. And we all just stood around looking at this thing. I'm going, it's a bit bigger than a pig. 
And Miranda's like, yeah, yeah. And it's Ian going, I didn't, uh, where are we starting? And the farmer, for some reason, had taken a slice out of the cheek in order to check for quality control or something. Oh. And, had, and didn't have the ears, so we had to sort of fake it with pigs. It was, it was. I mean, honestly, it was like Frankenstein's pig monster. But uh, <laughs> and there's a video of me up to my armpit as I'm trying to stuff this thing. So and I was picking bits of pig out my armpit for you know hours afterwards. I'm sitting on a train going, "Why do I smell a ball? I'm a bit greasy." Uh, so the magic of showbiz. Yeah, I didn't look like that on television. <laughs> uh, and I would say as well, boar is much tougher than pig, so it's definitely worth having a thimble and a selection of gloving needles and a butchery glove. But it is worth doing if you want a challenge. Just allow lots of time and make sure that you have a lot of people who are prepared to come over and eat it. Mm, well, my butchers just start getting wild boars, so... We need to cut back. I did actually put full instructions on how to make the boar's head into the back of Greedy Queen. So oh, if you've got a copy of the Greedy Queen. I do Queen, have a copy of that, yes. Then in the back of that, there's the full five page explanation of how you would go about it. Uh, so, yeah. Right. Send photographs. Right. I know what's going to be on the table next Christmas. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Done well. It's amazing. And it's fun. Yeah, it does yeah, look fun. Just, it, it is it is good fun. It's good yeah, fun. Yeah, and my friends and family are getting less and less squeamish as I turn up with more and more <laughs> weird things for them to eat. So I'm sure yeah, I find you, you, you do have to go in slowly, I would say. You mentioned Francatelli. Was it he who did the dessert head, Boar's Head? Yes, yes. That sounds really good. Oh. We did that once for a documentary when I was making the Sweet Makers for the BBC, which was mm. a documentary about uh, confectioners um, mm-hmm. and confectionery through time. For the Christmas special, we set the confectioners. They're all professional sweet makers, professional chocolatiers. Um, so they knew their stuff very, very well. We were challenging them with things from the past. So it was a lovely thing to set these professionals, these challenges that were up to their standard. It wasn't the usual sort of here's something difficult from the past to this sort of amateur who's going to go, oh, my God, what is this? Uh, but they sort of set to work on this thing. And Francatelli's recipe is sponge cake, which is hollowed out and filled with ice cream. Um, and it is uh, made to look like a boar's head. It is glazed with chocolate. It has uh, hatelet skewers in it, which have got things like um, uh, chocolate truffles on top to look like real truffles, coxcombs made out of marzipan, that kind of thing. So it's a really lovely trombloy dessert. Mm. And the confectioners, when they did it, oh, it was it was one of those really magic moments where, because I was consultant on the series as well, so it's my idea for them to do this insane thing. And I didn't really know how it would turn out. And they really got into it. They totally got the concept, totally got the idea of it. And they just worked so well as a team, all four of them. It was fantastic. And I was I didn't see the sort of last half day of them doing it quite deliberately because they wanted a reaction on the screen. Mm. And when I walked in, honestly, I nearly died. It was just like, oh. this, is, this is everything. This is so... <laughs> fabulous it's so kind of so much of what you see on television and so much of what's in the media with food history is the yuck factor it's can you tell us something weird from the past or Mm. can we show something gross because it's really funny and you think but it isn't there's plenty of things we eat today which are absolutely appalling and in a hundred years time people will go why on earth are you eating that ew yeah i mean don't get me started you you wouldn't kind of laugh and go if it was somebody else's culture no, precisely. And, and, and that's the exactly same thing. the difference. It is completely. Um, and it's it's so, it's just so rude, frankly. 
uh, yeah. but also really misguided. Yeah, most of the time it's time, really good. I mean, totally. especially these cookbooks, you know, older ones. I mean, no one's starving eating this stuff. They're eating it because they like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yet we, <laughs> because we don't eat offal now, suddenly offal is recast as something horrible. Well, you know, I didn't grow up eating offal at all. And when I started to study food history, I thought, this is ridiculous. You know, I can't be squeamish about these things. Mm. And I'd had kidneys a couple of times and really hated them because they were so big and so boingy and kind of unrelentingly kidneyified and, and t- <laughs> tasted of wee. So yeah. I went back to basics. I did Eliza Acton's recipe where she slices them really thinly and flash fries them. And suddenly you get rid of the boingy, challenging texture. And because it's very highly spiced, you, you use that kind of uric tang in a way that really complements the flavour. And suddenly you go, oh, my God, kidneys are amazing. Mm. And they're really good for you. We should be eating every part of the animal if we're going to eat meat. So the idea of being squeamish is just, to my mind, it's, it's just mind boggling. Um, yeah. And very, we- very closed minded as well. Yeah, it's our problem, not theirs, that we don't like these things, really. And there are things I genuinely don't like. Um, uh, Trifle is absolutely an abomination, infamously, for me. Yeah, well, I I wasn't going to bring up Trifle, because I know that we're going to disagree. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, for me, the idea of soggy cake is really, really kind of gut-wrenchingly awful. Just as for somebody else, the idea of, I don't know, um, eating brains is terrible. So it, it is just about how you think about food and where you're coming from really no it's true it's a big divider anything with soggy bread or cake in some people just absolutely hate i think my problem with trifle is the fact that you you get i mean you know the custard whatever that's fine the jelly i quite like jelly and then suddenly you hit this kind of and it's gritty as well a lot of the time and i i have a suspicion a lot of my trifle just like comes from my uh, grandparents trifle in the 1980s which naturally involved tinned fruit so there was ad- added grit from the tinned pears yeah yeah they're all gritty of, yeah br- yeah and the, and the one kind of glacé cherry that you mm-hmm. thought was going to be good but actually just tasted like sugar mm-hmm. uh, and yeah there was nothing nothing good about the trifles of my childhood and i was never very fond and still am not very fond of fortified wine either so ports and sherries and things. Certainly my auntie used to make an absolute deathly sherry trifle every year. And that put me off for years. I thought I didn't like booze in food. Mm. Uh, but then I did Jane Grigson's trifle, which is full on booze. And it's got a, a what's it called? A syllabub on top. Oh, yeah. Whipped one. Oh, a whipped best. one uh, oh, yes. made with muscat wine. And the alcohols are seasoning. It's not a yeah. major ingredient. It's and suddenly the penny having... dropped. I was like, yeah. oh, okay. This is yeah. how it's meant to be. It this shouldn't be fine. a gut punch. It should mm. be about a balance of flavours. I think the problem with a lot of trifles is it's just everything in together at once. And you don't get that sort of the distinct layering that you would get in an yeah. old trifle. I don't, Hannah Glass's trifle's fine because she puts the biscuits in at the last minute so they stay crispy. And there is a Victorian one. It's a Queen of Trifles one, which is mm. utterly epic. It's in Garrett. And that one oh, is yeah. kind of everything but the kitchen sink. But on the other hand, it's so kind of gratuitous that, and I tend to do it with ginger wine, and that's quite good. And that again, sometimes I finish it with whipped syllabub, sometimes I need to whipped cream. That mm. one is is kind of okay, but I would still generally prefer to head for the Stilton. Did you have a massive tantrum when um, the Queen's? jubilee pudding ended up being a great big horrible trifle i was a bit disappointed to be honest but you know what (laughs) after you know brexit tories austerity boris johnson covid and all the rest of it it's one of those things we just go well of course it's a bloody trifle isn't it (laughs) it's actually the cherry on top it looked good bit of a faff but it looked good it was not a mincemeat flambéed omelette but it was all right 
Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you about those in a minute. We've gone down a, a trifle rabbit hole. Let's get ourselves out of it. It's a very meaty time of year, Christmas. I like you put a good deal of attention to pies. <laughs> the Christmas pie. Yes. I mean, what a <laughs> wonderful, grotesque thing that is. Uh, we made one once for, again for a documentary and it was too big to fit in the fridge and everyone went, oh, it's fine, it's really cold. It'll just live outside. And a week later it had gangrene in the middle. Mm. Um, yeah, so the Christmas pie is a much better iteration of the five bird roast that gained traction about, what, mm. 10 years ago? It was really mm-hmm. fashionable. Mm-hmm. And it's a bird and a bird and a bird and a bird and a bird surrounded in pastry and mm-hmm. stuffed. The sides are usually filled with things like fillets of hare and grouse and game and force meat and about a million pounds worth of truffles. And the whole thing is encased in a very, very large, very thick hand-raised crust. There is an, uh, an illustration of one in Francatelli, which I've always felt to be uh, a little bit overdone, to be mm-hmm. honest. I mean, it's a, it's a line drawing, so there's nothing to say it was ever... It's a sort of a foot, two foot, what's that in real numbers? Half a metre high, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And these things were epic. You know, there are depictions of Christmas pies where they come with their own trailer with wheels because <laughs> people can't lift them. Um, yeah. and there's Dickens that Queen Victoria about... one, isn't there, when there's like four pole bears. Yeah. Four massive foot with this yeah. thing on it, and and she she did have. We've got a photograph of her sideboard in 1888 from Osborne House, and there's mm. a game pie on that, which dwarfs the Baron of Beef. Now the Baron of Beef she had was about 300 pounds in weight, so it's the entire back end of a cow, mm. really up to its front shoulder blades. And I first time I saw that picture, I thought, what is that? Because the tail's still on it, and it looks like a Scotty dog. Yeah, you know, the angle of the kind of way the meat sticks out, it mm-hmm. looks like some warped dog sheep beast creature. And the date is on it in flowers as well. So it's completely bonkers. But mm-hmm. the pie is even bigger than that bit of cow. So, and then there's this tiny, rather sweet looking woodcock pie, which was sent to her every year from the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. And it's, it's really diddy. And you think, oh, oh, that's really cute. And then you realise it's probably still, you know, a massive great pie. It's just that the really big pie is absolutely enormous it's probably half my height and these things were they were popular in the 18th century uh, and they became Mm -hmm. even more popular in the 19th century and then went out of fashion really as ovens became smaller because you didn't need a large oven for them and I think as as life became slightly less extravagant and game-filled because Dickens writes about one at one point and and it's there looming in the table and kind of takes over this this poor bloke's mind and kind of swamps him so they were both the stuff of dreams and the stuff of nightmares at the same Mm -hmm. time I would say Uh, and there is a lot of death in them they are another one of those things where you really had to know what you were doing in order to get them cooked in the middle yes I was asked to make one Hannah Glasses yeah that one's four birds is that pigeon into a partridge into a pheasant into a Turkey, well, there's a goose in there as well. It's a goose Five as birds, well. Isn't it, and then you yeah. fill in the gaps with hares and grouse yeah. and whatever else. And it was a massive disaster. It was just such a disaster. It all got cut out. It took yeah. me a I week mean, hand, to hand make it. I mean, hand-raised pies are a nightmare anyway, frankly. Uh, yeah, they are, yeah, even a small one, it's touch and go, yeah, isn't it, where it's going to leak? Yeah. yeah, and whether the pastry is just going to decide to go for a walk in the oven and it's... You know, it, it, yeah, pies are always one of those things where they look fantastic, but I do think the best and surest way to do it is just get a mould and do a smaller one. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was a disaster. But um, there used to be quite an important sort of act of gift-giving, weren't there, the Christmas pies? It wasn't you, like you went down to the butchers to order your Christmas pie, at least not at first. It was all meant to be a, a huge pie that kind of would, with a big thick crust, like you say, so it, you could transport it 
well, yeah. carriages, I suppose, at first, and then trains. Well, yeah, I mean, there are certain things that are ideal for gifts. So things like potted meat and potted potted char was a big one, actually, from Lake Windermere. Things that you could cover with a layer of fat and they would keep mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. indefinitely. Uh, and with a pie, of course, you can cover the air hole with a layer of lard. And then nothing, the air doesn't get into it, so it's mm-hmm. effectively sealed. So as long as your crust is really sealed and as long as you've filled in your air holes, in theory, bacteria is not going to get in, so it's fine to transport. So they were predominantly, all sorts of pies were very, very good for gifts because, again, they're, they're not something that you're going to cook in the average home. So this is something that is very much about the aristocracy who have huge beehive ovens or later on ordering them from your caterer who would have a massive oven. Uh, And they are very much, they say, look at this, look at the sheer quantity of meat in this. And of course, for much of history as well, we had quite draconian game laws. So to send something with game in to a friend was a real demonstrator Mm. of prestige of how much you loved them. Here, nothing says love like an awful lot of dead meat. Oh, I bet it was rank when it got opened. I think a lot of them must have been quite (laughs) awful. Uh, I mean, presumably not all of them, because otherwise they wouldn't have happened um and and people wouldn't have kept sending them but i think there must always have been a bit of a risk i mean of course winters tended to be colder then so uh the risk factor is slightly less than it would be today where we're still wandering around in shirt sleeves in the middle of december but although not this week were there any great revelations to you when you were cooking up those recipes because there's familiar ones and there's some fairly obscure things in there Mm. too which is good it's a good mix ages to get pepper cake right uh pepper cake was the source of some angst Mm. Uh, because I'd always read about it and thought, oh, it sounds very nice. So it's a it's a sort of gingerbread, but based on allspice, hence pepper, because it was um, uh, Jamaican pepper is what it was known at yep. one point. Um, and it was eaten with cheese. And I love cheese. So I thought this would be great. I'll have a go. And oh, my goodness me. The, re- the early recipes are just so, they're very, very <laughs> typically historic, as in here are some ingredients, knock yourself out. Yeah. Uh, but they're also enormous. So the problem in them really doesn't so much lie in guessing what's going on as in the fact that you've got to scale them down to make them workable, to make just a small loaf from gallons of these things, because a lot Mm. of them are in catering manuals. So it Mm -hmm. took me quite a long time to get a pepper cake, which I felt would be edible both then and recognisably edible then, but also would be okay for the modern palate um without veering too far from what it should be yeah you do have to tweak things sometimes don't you yeah and i wanted the recipes (laughs) to be things that people could conceivably cook i mean okay there's a recipe for brawn in there involving the entire side of a pig but you know leaving that aside most of the recipes (laughs) are things that 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 someone of of reasonable cooking ability and who's only slightly insane would be able to have a go at quite easily Uh, it's not a a modern recipe because i've not modernized the recipes but at the same time i did want them to be good because people in the past wouldn't have eaten it if it was bad so it's not fair to say well this is rank well it must have been like that so have you got anything that you would really suggest people make at home Uh, i would say the mincemeat omelette do the original well alfred suzanne escoffier style version not the fanny Craddock one because she doesn't set it on fire and quite frankly if you're not setting it on fire what are you doing you know (laughs) Brandy on top, massive fire, brilliant. Uh, mm-hmm. Really sets you up on a Christmas breakfast as well because then you can get through whatever you're dealing with for the rest of the day knowing that you're full of mincemeat and eggs and booze. And, I mean, I I always do Francatelli's Christmas cake, but I do have to say that the wartime Christmas cake in the book is quite a nice, easy win if you just want mm-hmm. a quick cake. It was mm-hmm. quite a revelation, actually. I didn't expect it to be very good. Uh, I suspect it was a kind of early war cake, given that there's quite a lot of things in there. There's no way you'd have been getting hold of by 1943. But it was quite a nice cake, actually, quite a good crowd pleaser. Oh, good. Hey, we're running out of time. I've got so many, so many things I'm going to ask. I want to ask you, so I'm going to reduce it to, to a couple of one-word answers. Have you got hold of your spam figgy pudding? No, it hasn't arrived yet. Oh. I'm told it's en route. 
it's on route and it's, it's almost certainly i think i'm probably going to do pizza again this christmas we're having a debate i'm a bit like well you know what we do pizza after christmas for like my other half family as well but everyone likes a pizza but i'm currently thinking as a build on my usual spam and pineapple pizza mm-hmm. a figgy pudding spam and pineapple pizza might Whoa. just uh, i know i know i mean that's going to tip the balance i'm going to be yeah. it, it might just send me overboard to be honest i might have to just <laughs> stop cooking at that point and live on ready meals for the rest of my life having peaked i'm going to let you get off one quick question though the book at christmas we feast is out now in paperback um what else is coming up for Annie Gray in 2023. Anything we can look out for? Anything you can tell us about? <laughs> uh, yes. Mm-hmm. So I have written a Call the Midwife tie-in cookbook. Oh, uh, yes, you the have. Same, yes. <laughs> the same company that did the Downton Abbey book. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this was a sort of bit of a, a lockdown project, I suppose, but I really enjoyed writing it. I thought, oh, it'll be fun, you know, 1960s food. I'd never watched the series, to be honest. So it was a bit like, oh, it'll probably be terribly nostalgic and a bit, you know, mm-hmm. weird. And I'm, I don't have any maternal bone in my body. But uh, I then got addicted to the series and uh, watched all 11 seasons in 11 like, seasons? Two months. Whoa, and loved, I mean, it was such a joy to write. It's, it's 1960s food and it's, it's working class food a lot of the time as well. So it's really interesting to look at that milieu and then think mm. what would people want to eat as well. Again, it's, it's that bit where you say, well, this is what would have been eaten, but actually nobody really wants a book that just says open can of baked beans put on toast. So it was lots of cakes, lots of silver balls. And also the editors and the production company behind Call the Midwife were quite, they were really lovely to work with because they were just like, yeah, we want to hear your voice in it. So you don't need to write in a corporate style. You can put a bit of yourself in it, be the mm-hmm. viewer. So it's, it yeah. was quite nice to be able to put in stuff that I found interesting and to try and explore through a really well-known series the food history and the social history of the period. So that was quite fun. Um, yeah, and then I'm also working on a history of the high street, which is due out, I think, at the back end of next year, which is right. slightly sideways move, but it comes out of food shopping and procurement. Essentially, it's just about how we eat and how we buy our dinner. It's, it's fun. It's um, still in the middle of writing that one. So, okay. you know, the, the trauma is still real. Well, we're patient, so it's fine. Yeah, I think it's, it should be dirt. It's either next, it'll be next autumn or possibly the spring, depending on edits and pictures and what else is coming out and, you know, what publishing is like. It's a sort of mm-hmm. strange process. But, Certainly But is. Those, are the, those are the next two. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Have a good Christmas. Hope you get you your, your feet up for, a, well, maybe not the full 12 <sighs> days, but at least one. Well, I always quite like Christmas Day because it's the one day of the year when nobody emails you asking for work. So, um, yeah, no, it'll be flambéed omelette, pizza, feet up, trashy TV and a nice bottle of wine, I should think. So. Sounds good to me. Bob, Merry Christmas and thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Happy Christmas to you and happy Christmas to all the people listening as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Annie. Annie's book... At Christmas We Feast is out now in paperback from Profile Books. And if you want to follow Annie and what she's up to on social media or her website, links to all of those are in my show notes. I've also left links to some of the things we talked about, like Frank Catelli's book, The Modern Cook, as it was mentioned a few times by Annie, as well as a couple of past blog posts about subjects that were brought up, like Smoking Bishop and my Yorkshire Christmas pie disaster. There's also a link to my blog, British Food History, as there are several new posts on there that have appeared since season four came to a close. So have a look at those. 
I'll also be posting my annual Christmas boozy drink recipe in the next few days. This year it's going to be eggnog. Let's just quickly talk about subscriptions and the premium content. It's come to my attention that it's quite tricky to find the subscriber content or even to know when new things have been published. So from January next year, 2023, everyone who subscribes will receive a monthly newsletter. In the newsletter will be links to any new posts or recipes or content on the blogs or podcast, including the subscriber only stuff. And also in that newsletter, folk will get to hear about any events and things like that before anybody else that will be cropping up in 2023, at least fingers crossed anyway. Talking about subscriber content, there are three Easter eggs for subscribers only from today's chat. I had to cut some stuff for time. We talk about mince pies and why it's always best to make them at home. Plus Yorkshire Christmas fruminty, as well as an uncut part of our chat where we talked about boar's heads, trifles and squeamishness. Subscribing is just one of the several ways you can support the blogs and podcast. I mean, you already are supporting them by listening. But if you want to support a bit more, please review, like, and tell folks about the podcast and the blogs. But yes, you could also become a subscriber and get access to my Easter eggs page, as well as all the extras from past episodes, deleted scenes, extra bits, uncut interviews, extra episodes and mini seasons. There's going to be a episode later on in this season just for subscribers. If you want to start a subscription, go to the support the blog and podcast tab on the website britishfoodhistory.com a subscription is just £3 a month and everything I receive goes back into making more content alternatively you can treat me to a one-off virtual coffee or virtual pint and yet another way of supporting (laughs) is to get a copy of my book A Dark History of Sugar It's available from all good bookshops, but if you want to get a copy straight from me, which I can, of course, sign for you, they're going for £18 each plus postage. I mean, you can, of course, purchase it from any bookshop. If you want to get one from me, drop me an email. Oh, yes. Please contact me with comments, queries, etc. for the next postbag episode. Not just about episodes in this season, but any of the seasons so far email neil at britishfoodhistory.com and all of the other social media handles there are too many of them to say but they're all in the show notes so yes have a really good christmas i hope you really do get a chance to do some feasting and then you do get to have at least a little bit of cozy calm and rest i'll be back with the next episode somewhere between christmas and new year so i'll see you very soon cheerio